0: Greetings to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri, and I welcome you to this Bible study time together. Welcome you, those of you listening in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO Radio, 850 AM, and we welcome those joining us uh, really online anywhere in the world, I suppose, on KFUO.org. In this class, as we do every Sunday, we're going to be taking a look at the lessons, the scripture lessons that are assigned for next Sunday. So together today, we'll be looking at the scripture readings assigned for September 27. And before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving for all the blessings you continue daily to shower down upon us. First of all, all that we need physically to support and sustain us in this life, but especially do we thank you for the eternal life that you have provided for us through your Son's perfect life, death, and resurrection once again. We thank you also for the gift of your word, your self-revelation to us of things that we could never learn or understand in any other way. And we pray that your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon us as we study that word together today. May it cause our faith to be strengthened, our knowledge to be increased, and may we also grow in our understanding of your will for us as your children here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking today at the lessons that will be uh, read in a lot of churches on the following Sunday, and that's Sunday, September 27. We're going to look, first of all, at Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4 and 25 through 32. We'll then take a look at Philippians 2, and we're going to do all of it. Uh, There's an option to leave some of the verses out. We're going to look at all of the lesson, and that's verses 1 through 18. And then we'll look at the Gospel lesson, which is Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. As is often the case in uh, the lessons that we have on Sundays, there is a common thread or theme that is present in both the Old Testament and the Gospel lesson. And I think we'll see today that that theme is repentance. And repentance, of course, in Lutheran understanding is first of all involves contrition, uh, sorrow over our sin. Uh, we are moved to that by God's law, His his word that points us to our sin shows us our sin and then secondly there is also the forgiveness through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ both of those are extremely important of course and we shouldn't have one without the other Uh, first of all there is that contrition or sorrow and there is also the forgiveness that we have and the belief, the uh, understanding, faith, and the fact that our sins are forgiven strictly by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Both of those belong to repentance. Let's begin then, uh, I want to say the, uh, back to Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to look at verses 25 through 32. So starting at verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. little uh, context here. Basically, what is happening, we've got uh, Ezekiel writing here, and he's writing from around the year 593 to about the year 570, right in the middle of that, 586 B.C., uh, finally Judea and Jerusalem are going to be toppled by the Babylonians. God is raising up the nation of Babylon uh, to bring judgment upon his people, hopefully to move them uh, finally to repentance. And, Even though 586 is the year when Jerusalem finally fell and the temple was burned and and the whole city destroyed, uh, even prior to that, uh, Babylon had been scoring uh, victories, you might say, and uh, others had already been carted off, uh, God's people had already been carted off uh, to Babylon, some of the brightest and the best. Um, Daniel, for example, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already been carted off. So, uh, although, again, the city fell in 586, even prior to that, uh, Babylon was on the move. Um, Ezekiel uh, is in exile. Um, In in 1 verse 3, we see that he is in the land of the Chaldeans, which is another way of saying the Babylonians, by the Chebar Canal Uh, in Ezekiel eight verse one, we see that he lived in a house, so not too poor in terms of living conditions, apparently, uh, in the Babylonians. And that's the Babylonians um, were not as harsh in many ways as the Assyrians were, who conquered the northern tribes. The purpose of the book of Ezekiel is to explain, first of all, why God's glory departed from Israel. Why is there this judgment that is coming upon them? And uh, also, on a positive side, to note how God's glory would return. Um, why God's glory departed? Well, first of all, Israel has not walked in the Lord's statutes. And secondly, there was just plain blatant idolatry. Um, in many cases, just going through the motions, just lip service paid to God, uh, mixing the worship of the one true God with the worship of false gods. And so God was really left with no choice uh, but to bring justice upon his people and judgment upon his people. But there is, as I mentioned, the other side as well, that God's glory will return. God keeps his covenant and the new life that God is going to give his people is plainly seen in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Many of you will remember hearing or reading the dry bones vision uh, in which those bones are given life and come back. Uh, to life once again, a beautiful image for God's people uh, going through judgment and uh, justice and coming back to life once again. Beautiful picture for death and resurrection, of course, uh, as well. Now, Ezekiel 18, this chapter is very important theologically. Um, It uh, gets the point across that each of us is individually accountable before God for our sin, each and, and each person must stand before the judgment seat of God. And that's what was happening in these first four verses that I read. Uh, god's people were insinuating that his ways were not just. They couldn't see their own sin. Uh, they couldn't see how they had left the Lord and were worshiping the false gods, and that this was not pleasing in the sight of God. They still thought of themselves as God's people, And they were repeating this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, it's not our fault, it's our forefathers' fault. They're the ones that ate the sour grapes and yet our teeth are being set on edge. And we all know that feeling or that taste when we bite into something that's bitter or sour. And it was just an expression or a proverb, a way of saying that we're being punished for the sins of our fathers. Okay? You know, it brings to mind that it is always the way of sin, is it not, to blame someone else, to try to, to uh, rationalize why we're being uh, uh, disciplined or something's happening by blaming somebody else. Just think of our first parents as the perfect example, Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, Adam uh, says to God, it was the woman that you gave me. Eve says it was the serpent. So, you know, yes, Lord, it happened, but it's really not my fault. It's someone else's fault. And that, of course, again, is just the way of sin. And we see it operating completely here amongst God's people, unable to face the fact that they are responsible for their own sin. And it's their own sin that is going to bring uh, judgment and discipline from the Lord upon them. So, God says in verse 3, As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel, because it's wrong. We are not punished for the sins of anyone else. We are punished for our own sin. We are, we are accountable to God for our own sin." not for the sins of anyone else, not our parents, not our grandparents, not our siblings, not our spouse, no one else. Uh, we are, God holds us accountable on account of our own sin. Um, God says in verse 4, uh, quite a statement, all souls are mine. In other words, they all belong to me. I have complete ownership of them. And that, of course, is absolutely true. Uh, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, and then that statement: "The soul who sins, it shall die." That kind of that statement at the very end is a about as blunt and matter of fact statement as you can possibly find. Uh, it, it really summarizes the whole chapter, um, and of course, when it is talking about death here. It is talking about not just physical death, not just the stopping of brain waves and the stopping of a pulse. It's talking about spiritual death as well. And that of course amounts to the eternal banishment uh, from God, his love, his mercy, his grace. And that is what happens when the soul who sins shall die. And again, it's notice there it's your own sin that causes that death. So, first off, God's people were completely wrong in trying to pass the buck to their forefathers for the calamity that is going to come upon them from the Babylonians. And uh, we see people today, uh, and it is is a way of sin, as I say, to blame someone or something else for what is occurring in your own life, uh, your own sin. Uh, You know, we can blame other people for our sin, we can blame Uh, circumstances in our life for our sin. Uh, Some people uh, may even try to blame the coronavirus for sin or sins they are committing. Uh, It is always the way of sin to point the finger at something or someone else as the real cause. It is not the way of sin to stand up and take responsibility for our sin. And this is what God is trying to move his people to do uh, in Ezekiel 18. All right, now we skip skip quite a section here, and we skip from verse uh, 4, which we just read, to verse 25 in Ezekiel 18. So let's do that now. Yet you say, the people say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So we'll stop here. Uh, Again, (laughs) Israel is saying that God's ways are not just, that here, they're going to be punished. Uh, you know, they, they, they still thought of themselves as God's people. And, you know, the services are still happening in the temple at the right times. Uh, they're going through the motions. Oh, sure, um, you know, it might be just pain-lip service. And sure, we may have added uh, uh, some of the false gods as well in our worship. But, uh, you know, we are still the people of God. And why in the world are you bringing this calamity upon us? It's just not right. It's just not just. And uh, God says, my ways are just. Is it not your ways that are not just? Verse 26, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. And again, notice this point, first of all, that it is for the sin of that person that that person dies. This whole idea of uh, the buck being passed down to the next generation in terms of being punished for the sins of the fathers is complete nonsense. Notice also, in a way here, uh, God is saying that they can, they can, people can repent from, doing right, from being righteous. Oh, well, they certainly can uh, God does not force us to follow him. God does not straightjacket us. Unfortunately, people can turn their back on God. People can walk away from God. And they can, in the words of Ezekiel here, turn away from righteousness and do injustice or sin. And then it says that anyone who does that, he who does that shall die. And again, we're talking not just about physical death, but the spiritual death as well. Verse 27, again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. So this is the other direction now, and this is, of course, what God would be uh, moving and wanting, desiring deeply his people to do, is turn away from their wickedness and in so doing, turn to him, of course, turn back to him and save their life. Now, we've got to be careful here. Uh, obviously, we know from the rest of Scripture that, uh, from many places in Scripture, I should say, that this is not something that we do. We do not produce repentance in ourselves. This is not uh, something that I look inside myself and produce. It is God who produces this in us. And, again, through his word, through his law, first of all, and then also the sweet message of his gospel, that our sins are then forgiven. So we got to be careful we don't read this as if the people are doing this themselves. It is a result of God and his word beckoning them to repent and also the judgment that has already been pronounced that is on the way. Verse 28. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So again, a God making it very clear that just as we are not punished for anyone else's sins, we have to also be very quick to say that we are not saved by somebody else's repentance and faith. I think, unfortunately, that there are some people today who think that they are pro- possibly in God's good graces because of the faith of their parents or the faith of their grandparents or uh, the faith of their spouse, that somehow it's going to rub off on them and, and uh, kind of be a, a way of putting them in God's good graces, when, of course, the, that is just not true. Uh, In the same way that we are not punished for the sins of our fathers, the same is true on the other side of the ledger. We are not saved by someone else's repentance and faith. Uh, It is a very individual, one-on-one situation with each person and God. Verse 29. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So again, that's a a repetition of uh, verse 25 that God just reiterates here. And again, the absolute uh, lunacy of of God's people uh, thinking that his ways are not just, that they did not have this coming, so to speak, and that they were being unfairly singled out and unfairly punished And uh, that is simply not the case. God makes it very clear. It is very concise. The soul that sins, it will die. The soul that repents and turns to righteousness shall live. It's that simple. Verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Again, notice that. Everyone according to his ways, not somebody else's ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn uh, from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. That uh, double use of repent and turn, it really means the same thing. Um, the word repent is used a thousand times, roughly a thousand times in the Old Testament, and uh, can, as I say, can only be uh, produced by God in us, by his word convicting us. So you see, again, the desire of God here, even at this late point, for his people to repent and turn from all their transgressions, all their sins, lest their iniquity or their evil be their ruin, and their ruin not just in terms of their physical nation being ruined, but of course, spiritually speaking, they being ruined for eternity. Then verse thirty-one: Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make your and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So this casting away of all transgressions again would be repentance, a turning away, a throwing away our sins, and make yourselves a new heart. And of course, again, we want to reiterate that is only God who can regenerate us, who can give us a new heart, both toward him and toward life and toward sin, and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You know, what a, what a question. Um, you, know, how, you can almost sense God's pleading with his people here. Why will you die, again, eternally, O house of Israel? And verse 32 is one that's often quoted. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, there's that There's that repentance word again, turn and live. And that live, just as death is eternal, life here is eternal as well. You know, it, it is um, repeated throughout scripture, this, this sentiment that God has in verse 32, that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone anyone. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, We think of, for example, of 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, where in speaking about God, uh, Paul writes to Timothy uh, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Just think about what he did in order to make that salvation possible, not even sparing his own son, but delivering him up for us. A little bit later on in the book of Ezekiel, uh, in chapter 33, uh, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way, there's that repentance again, turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Very similar to what we just read Uh, A few minutes ago in Ezekiel eighteen, and then secondly, uh, Second Peter, rather, chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is slow. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it is repeated throughout Scripture that God's primary desire, His primary will for us is our salvation and our life, our eternal life, and that he takes no pleasure in what is called sometimes his secondary will, that we are punished and condemned for our sin, judgment, in other words. And uh, so, again, that's the point certainly of the Old Testament lesson, uh, is God pleading with his people for repentance, uh, correcting them in their... Um, assumptions that they are being punished for the sins of their fathers, um, uh, correcting them in the fact that they are saying his ways are not just. Uh, his ways are just, and he desires nothing more than they should repent and live. Now, I want to go uh, jump to the gospel lesson because this is Again, a theme we see in the Gospel lesson, and I think we can make a nice connection here. And then we'll come back and catch the Epistle lesson from Philippians chapter 2. So I want to jump to Matthew 21, and we are going to look at verses 23 through 32. Uh, Just a little context here. It is now Tuesday of Holy Week, and so Jesus is in Jerusalem. uh, uh, In fact, in our text, in the temple grounds. Uh, Monday of Holy Well, first of all, it's back up Palm Sunday. Of course, he comes in triumphantly in that in that procession. Uh, great crowds out in front of him, shouting Hosanna, which means Save Us Now, uh, waving palm bla- branches, uh, putting their uh, cloaks down on the on the road in front of him. And the religious leaders of that day took note of it and basically said, What can we do? The whole world is going after him. And you sense there a great um, jealousy, first of all, on their, on their part. And you sense that they are beginning to think that their power and their authority uh, is being taken away by this Jesus of Nazareth. That was Sunday. Then Monday, we've got uh, Jesus uh, clearing uh, the temple, clearing the temple grounds. Uh, actually, we think that's where all the buying and the selling was going on. Uh, As people came to celebrate the Passover from great distances, uh, they would not bring with them animals to sacrifice, uh, but had to purchase them there uh, instead, uh, right on the temple grounds. In fact, there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of written that this market that he clears may well have been in the court of the Gentiles, which is as far as the Gentiles could go uh, on the temple grounds. And so was actually robbing the Gentiles, the Gentile converts to Judaism, from having a place to worship. And the temple had always been, uh, and God's people had always been, for that matter, uh, you know, a light to the nations uh, that the nations would come and would worship. So uh, that's why uh, Jesus is so angry with them. And of course, there are the uh, we won't go into it, but there was a lot of uh, Uh, unfair practice, let's just say, in the exchange of money, uh, the cost of the animals, and a whole lot else. But uh, now we are on, on Tuesday of Holy Week, so all that has happened so far. And now we get the chief priests and the elders coming to try to interrogate Jesus. You can just tell that they are looking for something, anything that they can hang their hat on and try to get Jesus uh, taken care of, get rid of Jesus. Uh, Starting here in verse 23 of Matthew 21, And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Well, a few things here. First of all, the Sadducees uh, would have been the group from which the chief priests and the head priest, high priest, would have been chosen. They were the ones who really ran the temple in terms of its worship life. They were the group, of course, that would have been most harmed, most damaged, by what Jesus did on Monday in clearing or cleansing the temple. And no doubt, they were infuriated by what he had done. And so it's no surprise that they are coming to try and get him and question him. The elders were just community leaders uh, in uh, every one of the, uh, well, not major, but uh, somewhat sizable towns had uh, elders as well. Uh, We see it goes all the way back actually to the Old Testament. So they came, and notice what they are concerned about. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? They know, of course, this authority did not come from them. And notice there again what they are so concerned about. Their chief concern is about authority and power and um, you know, uh, ruling over someone else as they were doing over the religious life uh, in Jerusalem. Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism, so Jesus is basically saying here, I'm going to ask you a question. You give me the answer, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. So, verse 25, here's the question from Jesus to them. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So essentially, he's asking them the same question that he was being asked by them, what about the baptism that John did? And when they, say, when they say the baptism of John, it's not just the baptism that they're talking about. It's really his entire ministry. Uh, this whole baptism of repentance that John came and the preaching of repentance. Um, this was exactly what John the Baptist was sent to do. Um, he came preaching a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He came proclaiming that one coming after him uh, is the the, uh, the um, strings of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. So he is preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, to God's people. Now, this baptism of John, we have to say, um, most scholars do not think that this is the equivalent of the Pentecost baptism, or the let's just say the baptism in the Great Commission that Christ gives us to do, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was exactly what it was described to be, a baptism of repentance. It accompanied turning away from your sin and turning toward God. And again, uh, this is what John came to proclaim. Now, the, uh, the Sadducees and the elders are perplexed here. They are between a rock and a hard place. Uh, starting in the middle of verse 25, and they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, in other words, from God, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? So they're <laughs> thinking, all right, what are, what are the, the options we have here? If we say John's authority came uh, from God, then there's a simple question. He's going to say, then why didn't you believe him if that's what you really think? Verse 26 But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. Well, a couple things there. First of all, by just thinking which way they need to answer, they're basically saying what their answer is, are they not? That they are saying that they don't believe that John's authority came from God. If they're even entertaining, the saying that he is not, his authority is not from God. And notice the second thing, that they are afraid of the crowd. Uh, This is a recurring theme that the the following that Jesus had, and then, of course, how the Sadducees, and also the Pharisees, for that matter, uh, wanted always to look good and upright and holy uh, in the eyes of the people. So they were afraid of the crowd, for they, the crowd, all hold that John was a prophet. And certainly John was a prophet. Uh, We are reminded that in uh, Malachi 4, verse 5, there is a prophecy near the very end of the last book of the Old Testament where uh, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So people uh, were expecting Elijah to come uh, when the great day of the Lord comes. However, in Matthew chapter 11, that's earlier on in the book of Matthew, of course, so we're much further along now, but earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as being the Elijah who was to come and also speaks a great deal about... Uh, John the Baptist being a prophet. Let me just read for you from Matthew 11, verses 7 through 15. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the vi- and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So earlier on, Jesus had left no doubt that this baptism of repentance and the entire ministry of John the Baptist is from God. And that in fact he is the Elijah who was to come. So uh, the Pharisees here are, are not wanting to say that it was from God because there's a simple retort: Why didn't you believe it? They don't want to say it's not from it's from man, or it's, in other words, it's not from God, because the crowds held John the Baptist to be a prophet. They held him to be a prophet because Jesus had told them that, and also uh, we have to say because of God working through John the Baptist to bring many to repentance. So, verse 27, they, so they, that's again the uh, chief priests, the uh, Sadducees, the chief priests and the elders responded, we do not know. Well, there's a brave answer. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, Jesus really uh, uh, kind of put the kibosh on them there and got the better of them in that first exchange. Now, Jesus goes on the offensive and he tells a parable of two sons. Again, just to review, a parable is an earthly story that Jesus, uh, in which Jesus uses earthly details in order to tell us something about life in his kingdom. And so he tells this parable. And again, let's remember the context. We've got chief priests and we've got elders here in front of him. And uh, the context for any parable is always important. Let's read through the parable first and then go back and talk about it. What do you think, verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, this parable is, is at least most uh, that I've read, uh, seem to be quite simple to, to, uh, to unwind here. Uh, obviously the first son who said he would not go and work in the vineyard, uh, later changed his mind or repented, uh, and went and did the will of the father. The first who was all talk and all, you know, uh, all agreement, uh, ends up not doing what the father, uh, wanted to be done. Um, a, typical, uh, a typical explanation of this parable is that it is, of course, the first son uh, representing the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all other public sinners who first said no, but then ended up doing the will of God, and that is repenting of their sin, believing in Jesus, and, of course, going into the kingdom. And it is the second son, uh, those who uh, represented the religious leaders of the day who outwardly behaved as if they were constantly saying yes to the father, but they actually end up saying no. They do not repent. They don't even think they need repentance, just like God's people in the Old Testament lesson in Ezekiel. They don't need repentance. Um, And by saying, it's kind of uh, ironic that uh, by the chief priests uh, and the elders saying that it was the first son who did the will of the father, they're actually condemning themselves, aren't they? Uh, They're actually saying, if they'd stop and think about it, we are not doing the will of the father, and that would be absolutely true. Uh, You know, the great irony here uh, is that, of course, it's the public sinners who are actually doing, end up actually doing, the will of God. Um, And it's the religious leaders of the day, the people who should be leading God's people in the way of truth and in the way of life who end up uh, saying no. Uh, It's the public sinners who are turning and repenting, uh, and uh, those are the very same people that the religious leaders would scoff at would think uh, nothing of, would would avoid. Remember how uh, the the Pharisees and Sadducees were upset that Jesus would even eat with sinners or associate with them or tax collectors? Uh, that's how far they had strayed from the real will of God, felt they were too good uh, to associate with anyone they thought was unwor- uh, uh, an unworthy sinner. A couple of verses come to mind. Uh, John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So it is these tax collectors and public sinners who are actually doing the will of the Father. They are looking on the Son and believing and having eternal life. And we rejoice. There is Remember, there is such joy in heaven over over just one sinner who repents, who turns and believes, turns away from sin and believes. So again, we see the connection here between this gospel lesson and the Old Testament lesson from Ezekiel 18, and that connection is certainly one of repentance, turning away from sin and believing. All right, now we want to jump back to the Epistle lesson, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 18. And I see by the time remaining, we're going to have to go a little bit faster than I had hoped. Uh, There's a lot here. Let me just start with verse 1, then of Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Well, Philippians, Paul is, it just has to be his favorite church. Uh, You see joy rejoicing throughout this entire epistle. It's clear that he is extremely pleased with them. Um, He has a great relationship with them. Uh, Probably the the polar opposite of the way he begins the, the epistle to the Galatians, um, this one reads uh, like a love fest between Paul and the church at Philippi. So, any encouragement in Christ there in verse 1, the in Christ is a, is a big theme for Paul, not only in Philippians, but in other places. It, it implies, obviously, believing, uh, faith in Christ, and life in Christ, if you are in Christ. Any comfort uh, from love. So from love comes comfort, and that love, of course, is agape here, uh, the God's uh, love for us. Uh, Any participation in the Spirit. The word for participation is koinonia, which is also translated fellowship, or coming together in the Spirit. Uh, And finally, any affection, that's that word compassion, or splogsna, it's a um, deep-seated, kind of in the pit of your stomach, kind of uh, compassion. Uh, It's used in uh, Matthew 9, when Jesus sees the crowds uh, wandering like sheep without a shepherd, he has compassion, he has splogsna on them. And sympathy, end of verse 1, or sometimes translated uh, pity or mercy, so if they have any of this, Paul is saying, and that is a result of being in Christ, and so the implication is they have it. Verse 2, complete my joy, or make a make my joy full by being, how do we do that? By being of the same mind, so having the, the same uh, thoughts, having the same love, that's agape again, being in full accord, or having the same... Soul or spirit, and have and being of one mind. Or another way of translating this one mind, or is get your minds on the one thing, Uh, and that one thing, of course, would be Christ, crucified and risen. Then uh, do uh, uh, do not here starting in verse three do nothing from selfish ambition or or, uh, rivalry. We might say or. Uh, thinking of self first, or conceit. Um, the the word for conceit uh, comes from two Greek words: kenodoxa. Uh, keno means to empty, and doxa is glory. So empty glory, but so do nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Wow, that is a a statement that as we're going to see, points right back to Christ. And, of course, that is not our nature. Uh, That is not our sinful human nature to count others better than yourselves in all humility. Our first inclination is me, myself, and I. My importance, my needs, what I desire. No, not in the church. Um, We see, remember, even the disciples arguing on more than one occasion about who is the greatest, Remember the mother of James and John coming to Jesus and asking that her boys, James and John, one would sit at his left and one at his right when he comes in his kingdom. Uh, This is just so ingrained in us, and it is the way of sin. Uh, It is the old sinful nature that operates with selfish ambition and conceit, but not so in the church. Okay? Uh, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So another way of saying this is, have the mind of Christ amongst yourselves. Verse 6, and actually verses 6 through 11 are written in the original language in Greek as a hymn, uh, and it is a wonderful hymn known to many. So, starting in verse 6, I'm just going to read all the way through verse 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we could do an entire hour or more just on these verses, but let's just make a few points as we go. He was in the form of God or fully God. Back at verse 6 here. Fully God did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped now i must confess that in my earlier years i had trouble understanding this verse because i thought the grasping was something you were trying to get to in other words something you were trying to to um, acquire and i thought well that's strange if if said before that he was fully in the form of god he did not, here's the way to understand this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be latched onto or held to, So he's willing to give it up, in other words. And when he gave that up, he humbled himself, uh, taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, I should say, and took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, we want to be very careful here when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, he is still fully God. We don't want to take verses 6 and 7 to imply that somehow he became less than fully God when he was incarnate. At the same time, he was fully man, born of the Virgin Mary. He was fully man with flesh and bones. There was only one aspect that he was not like us in that, of course, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and was without sin as a result. So he is not 50% God and 50% man. He is 100% God, 100% man, the two full natures in Christ. Now, with respect to his divinity, he was fully still equal with the Father, but he was less than the Father, or inferior to the Father, only, of course, with respect to his humanity. And that's important for us to keep in mind. Uh, Better move on here. Verse 8, and being found in human form. So, again, all the characteristics of humanity except sin. um, He humbled himself, hearkening back now to what Paul has just talked about, about being humble and serving one another, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient, and that obedient, of course, would be to the will of the Father, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that even death on a cross is significant. It's not just that he died, but that he died on a cross. It was the most humiliating And also, at the same time, the most excruciating way uh, to die at that time. Uh, Criminals were often crucified on uh, public roads leading into the town. uh, And that added to the level of humiliation as people passed by and saw you there. Um, And then also the charge was put up on the top of the cross to serve as a deterrent Uh, to people. In other words, the message was, if you do this, this could be you someday up here on the cross, so don't do it. So it had those those two aspects to it, crucifixion did, Um, but it also had another one, uh, going back to the Old Testament, that anybody who was crucified was thought to be accursed. Uh, It just automatic, the automatic assumption and conclusion was they were accursed. Deuteronomy chapter 21 in the Old Testament, verses 22 and 23, reads this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him that same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So, uh, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree is another translation of uh, that one portion of, that, of those verses. So again, even death on a cross he suffered. And you think of him there in our place uh, in what really when you think of the magnitude of sin that he is there uh, paying for, taking our place and paying for um, crucifixion and the humiliation, the degradation that he is enduring, uh, is in some ways just when it comes to the size of our sin, the the amount of our sin, but, of course, totally unjust, that he is the one who is there enduring it in our place. Uh, Therefore, uh, going uh, on verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, this would be Jesus, of course, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. So, therefore, hearkens back to everything Paul has just written here. The uh, pathway leading to salvation, the uh, the uh, sa- sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, that's what, what precedes the therefore. Now, Christ is highly exalted, of course, seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, following his ascension now the, at the name of Jesus. Now, uh, every knee should bow, bowing, of course, in, in reverence, in awe, in worship, in respect, in heaven and on earth. And the phrase under the earth is thought by many to be a reference to hell. And we have the account um, in uh, 1 Peter 3 of uh, Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison. Uh, that's one of the main verses uh, that we get the descent into hell, the doctrine of the descent into hell. Of course, and we understand that to mean that he did not go there to suffer any longer or to finish suffering or to do anything but proclaim his victory over sin, death, and the grave to the souls of those who were there at the time. Uh, then, the, uh, finishing up in verse 11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, Jesus, of course, uh, the, name, the name means the Lord saves. It uh, comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, uh, related to Joshua uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's the name given to Joseph in a dream by, by an angel of the Lord. In Matthew one twenty one. it means, again, that the Lord saves. And he shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. And the word Christ, of course, means the anointed one or the Messiah. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, to the glory of God the Father. And again, what glory it is to God uh, that he would not even spare his own son, but deliver him up for us. There could be no more greater glorious God than a God who would do this on behalf of his people and on behalf of all people. Well, it looks like we're not going to be able to uh, finish the remaining verses. I apologize for that. Um, Paul goes on to talk about um, their lives now together uh, as a result of this, as Christians together in Philippi. Uh, He he talks about there not not to be grumbling and disputing, Um, that they may be blameless and innocent and children of God without blemish. And indeed, that's what they are, and that's what all of us are as well. Not Not by our own doing, but by God's doing through his grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. So, I hope you'll have a great week this coming week, and let us close with a benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.